Titus chapter 2, all of chapter 2. <laughs> um, when I was uh, preparing and, and, uh, and reading some different commentaries and things, um, I read this comment by D.A. Carson. Some of you might know who D.A. Carson is. Um, now, on the book of Titus, he noted that Paul's letter to Titus describes what we might call the civilizing effect of Christianity. And I thought that was just a really good description, especially of this chapter. I thought it might make a good sermon title. So that's the title of our sermon this morning. Um, so, of course, by saying that Christianity has a civilizing effect on people, I'm not saying that that's all that it does to a person. Christianity does much more than make someone a model citizen. Um, it, but it's also not less than that, and I think we're going to see that in this chapter. Um, so you're going to see how in the, the first half of the chapter, or a little over half, Paul uh, talks about how Christians are supposed to act, um, talks about you know the results of uh, believing in the gospel, and in different stages of life, he talks about older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then in the second half, Paul explains why people are to behave that way. Um, which is because they believe the gospel. So let's go ahead and put the passage up on the screen, and I'll uh, read it and, uh, and pray, and then we'll study this passage together this morning. Paul says to Titus, but, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled." Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us, that you would apply your word to our hearts, 
Lord, that you would show us um, the areas in our attitudes and our thoughts that are not right with you, and that by your word and by your spirit, Lord, you would um, renew our minds and renew our attitudes. As, uh, as Ben just sang, Lord, we sang in the song, test our thoughts and, and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity, of, of your holiness. And, uh, and the things that we say and do, Lord, help us to examine those as well. Help us to, um, Lord, just uh, apply your word um, to our hearts and, and to our lives. And I pray that uh, it would be effective so that the world may know um, that may know your disciples by our, by our love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 1. I'm going to take this kind of, well, a little more than verse by verse. It's a long passage. We have a lot to get through this morning. Um, so Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Remember in the verses prior to this in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Paul was talking about silencing false teachers, exposing false teachers. He said that these uh, teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. And, uh, and so, you know, the reason that their behavior did not line up with their claim to know God was because what they believed about God and his revelation, it was wrong. And so there's a very good reason that Paul begins with this statement in chapter 2, as he goes on to describe to Titus and to us, by extension, what the Christian life should look like. And he begins with an exhortation to, to teach God's people, Titus, I want you to teach what lines up with sound doctrine. Why? Because doctrine matters. It, it matters a lot. Doctrine is the fountainhead from which everything else flows. A person's theology, what they believe about God, is going to shape all of their other ologies. Your, your theology, what you believe about God, will inform your doxology, how you worship God. It'll, it'll inform whether Jesus is your Lord and Master or if he's just an addition to your life, right? Uh, theology is going to determine your anthropology, your beliefs about humanity, about, uh, about who you are and who other people are. Are we, you know, just uh, biological chemicals? Are we made in the image of God? Are, are we basically good in need of a little help here and there? Or are we born in sin, hopelessly wicked and, and in need of a savior? Theology is going to determine your anthropology. The, I know it's another big word, but theology will even determine your epistemology, which just means your belief about how you can know what's true. Is, is truth relative? Is it different for different people? Is, is it determined by human consensus? Or does truth come because God reveals it? Right? So theology matters. The doctrine matters. It matters a lot. And so that's why we must um, clearly teach only the things that line up with Scripture. And that's why it's a very um, fearful thing to be a, a preacher and a teacher of God's people. James says not many of you should be teachers, right? Because if, if the preacher doesn't teach God's word to the people properly, the people come away with all kinds of wrong ideas, which then in turn leads to all kinds of wrong behaviors and practices. There's a quote that I once heard from a guy named Dr. James White that I hope I never forget. He said, what is a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. 
So in other words, if there's like some confusion or lack of conviction or negligence on the part of those teaching God's word, it's going to result in exponential confusion in the congregation. So Paul tells Titus, teach only what lines up with sound doctrine. And then in verses 2 through 8, we see uh, these four categories that he lays out. And he gives these four pictures of uh, this is what the lives of, of um, these four categories of people should look like. He talks about older men, uh, older women, and then uh, young women and young men. Uh, what, what, what should a, the life of an older Christian man look like? What should the life of a young Christian woman look like? So let's look, for, look at these four pictures together. He says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. And when I was reading this, one thing that came to mind was that these are qualities that we might think should just come naturally. Right? As you get older, you get more mature. But maybe not, uh, right? Uh, they don't necessarily come naturally. Age does not automatically bring maturity. Physical, physical growth doesn't always go hand in hand with spiritual growth. Older men in the church are to be sober-minded or, or clear-minded. They, have to, they should be free from uh, addicting influences. They should be dignified or respectable, honorable. The idea is that they should be someone that others can look up to because of their character. But again, this isn't automatic. Uh, there are some older guys that I really want to be like, and there are some other older guys I don't really want to be like. Um, and so I was thinking about what happens as we get older, and one of the things that happens as you get older, we get set in our ways, right? Uh, that's definitely one thing that I think is, is pretty undeniable. That as, we, as people get older, we get set in our, in our ways. It, it becomes more and more difficult to change uh, certain views or behaviors, the habits that we have. Changing them is going to become more and more unlikely the older that we get. And so this can be a good thing if the behaviors and habits that we've cultivated are good and godly behaviors and habits. But it can also be downright tragic if we're set into ways, into you know, sinful attitudes and patterns and habits. Paul says they should be self-controlled. Uh, Paul uses this word, this word in Greek for self-controlled. I think I've talked about this before in previous sermons. Is the word sophron, and it's one of Paul's favorite words. <laughs> We're going to see, uh, see it over and over again, especially in this chapter. He repeats it a lot. But I want to look at the three others real quick. Sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. The sound in faith, right, so they should be right, the older men should be, should be in line with Scripture and reliable about what they believe. To be sound in faith means to be, um, to be, you're right about what you believe and that you keep on believing what is right and true, regardless of how the culture around you might change. Um, it's been said that Reformed guys love dead preachers. And uh, the reason that we love dead preachers is because they don't change what they believe. <laughs> you never have to wonder if they're going to, you know, go off the rails one day. Um, you know, they're, 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 what, they, what they believe is, is always the same. Uh, older men should be sound in love. Here's that famous Greek word when Paul uses the word, word for love and the Greek is agape. You know, describing the kind of love that God has for us. I mean, you want to raise the standard, there you go. 
Un- unconditional love. So older men should be have an attitude of benevolence, affection. Older Christian men should have an attitude of goodwill toward all people. Unconditional love. Love that gives and gives and gives without expecting anything in return. And then finally, steadfastness. The sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Or some translations say uh, patience or endurance. The ability to patiently endure, whatever it may be, whatever a trial, a sickness, uh, slander, difficult relationships, even persecution. The ability to endure and to keep going, to keep uh, persevering in the faith. You think of like a marathon runner who, who keeps running when um, everything in their body is screaming for them to lay down. So, so that's how Paul, he says that's how older men should be. Titus, I want you to teach that this is, this is the way that older men are to be. This is what God has called older men, older Christian men to be. And then he moves to older women. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and train the young women to love their husbands and children. So it seems that maybe uh, gossip and uh, overindulgence in wine might have been you know, two common sins that older women in that time and place had fallen into. Um, so Paul's telling Titus, teach these older women, don't be like that. You know, uh, don't take part in those, those common sins of your neighbors. Uh, you're, you're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be set apart. So it's like the, Titus is to remind these women that they're set apart for God. They're, they're not to be like the others around them. Um, the second thing I notice is that Titus is instructed to tell these women not just to stop those bad things, but to do good things. So it's like, you know, the whole put off, put on. There's a phrase I think I've heard Ben say before, the, I forget who, uh, who it comes from, the, the explosive power of a new affection. The best way to stop a sin pattern is, is not to just stop it, but to replace it with a, with a, a good habit, a new habit, a godly habit. Um, so older women shouldn't let themselves be idle, right? And that's, and, uh, that's, that's, part of the solution. They, they should uh, start serving and ministering to younger women. Train the younger women. So instead of being idle, which could lead to slandering, which could lead to overindulgence in things, um, instead, you know, serve the younger women and teach the younger women, train the younger women. And I thought about, and it doesn't matter if it's men, women or men, there's a trap that we can get, to, get into as we get older. Let's see if you guys can relate to this. I'm sure you can. So we have kids when we're young, right? Or young-ish for Penny and I, young-ish. And, um, and, the, and, and we work hard, right? We work hard at our jobs. We work hard at saving for, a, you know, for the future. We work hard at raising our kids. We work hard at, at being involved in church. And then while we're in the middle of that, we get this dream in our heads. Retirement. Retirement. One day my children will leave my house. One day I'll be able to stop working so hard and just take it easy. One day I'll finally have time for me. And so when we're older, you know, it's not like the needs disappear. 
the needs around us. The needs of younger people are still there. But the justification in our minds is already right there, and it's primed and ready to go. Those four words, I did my time. Right? Oh no, I'm not doing that. I can't get involved. I've been there. I've done that. Got the t-shirt. Right? So, of course, you know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with retirement or going on a vacation. It's not wrong to do those things. But it is wrong to have a mentality or a heart posture that says, I'm done serving. Uh, God is, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're retired or you're listening online and you're retired, God's not, God is not done with you because you're retired. Or because you've, you've stopped doing a certain thing. It's, it's time to seek the Lord and see the needs around you and take part in what's next. It's time to, to help the younger people and their kids. It's time to impart what you have learned to them so that they don't make the same mistakes you did. So Paul says the older women are to teach and train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Very practical, I think, here. Obviously, older women would know things from experience in living with a man through many years of marriage that younger women probably don't know yet. Uh, so Paul says they should teach the younger women how, I think it's so, it's so striking to me, how to love how to best love their husbands and children. And then Paul tells the younger women they're to be sensible and pure, which the word pure here means uh, innocent or modest or discreet. Makes me think of 1 Peter 3.3 3 that says, um, where Peter says that a wife's adornment must not be merely external with braided hair, beautiful jewelry and dresses, but rather let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So the way of the world is for the way of the world is for a woman to find her worth by maintaining a certain physical appearance. But the way of Christ is for a woman to believe her worth is found in him and to let the inner beauty of her character which comes through trusting and obeying Jesus to outshine her physical beauty. And so, Titus is to instruct younger women to be workers at home. One thing that I notice here that I think it would be good to draw out and to, to uh, really take notice of is the high value and the nobility that God places upon being a homemaker. Because I think our world often says the opposite, right? Um, you know, he says to Titus, teach the young women to love their husbands and children, be kind, uh, pure workers at home. It's a full-time job description. And it's a full-time calling. And it's a high calling. And it's a holy calling. It's not what our culture says. It's not a lesser calling. That as Christian men and women, our worth should, should be placed in what God has called us to be, and in doing his will, not in doing what the lost world might find most impressive. And then finally, here's, we're getting into the tough part. Young women are to be subject to their husbands. Paul says that young women should, should be uh, to submit their husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And I look at my own heart and I know how difficult it is for me to submit. Submission can be difficult. Obviously, it's a lot easier for a wife to submit to a husband who has proven over and over through his words and actions that he loves God and his family more than himself. So I think that's something that husbands should remember. But 
Sometimes husbands do make boneheaded decisions. Amen? God's word says that unless that decision or, or course of action is sinful, a wife should submit to her husband's authority, and that can take a lot of faith. Sometimes a Christian wife might have to choose to trust that God is able to work it out and will work it out, even if her husband does, think, does make a decision that she doesn't agree with. And then notice that this is about more than us. and We'll see this repeated over and over, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, right? So that the word of God may not be reviled. It's about our life testimony, so that God's word will not be reviled, so that it will not be dishonored. Though Paul is going to drive this home over and over, we'll see it repeated that our, our family lives should be model family lives, the civilizing effect of Christianity, uh, displaying the good fruit of the Holy Spirit so that everyone can see it, so that everyone can see, so that the lost world can see this is how a family ought to be. So wives, remember that and be gracious to your husbands even when they make boneheaded decisions. And then finally, we come to the young men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then in the next verse, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and, and dignity. It's interesting to me that um, here we see uh, that, that when Paul gets to the young men, it's, uh, it's interesting that he seems to focus more on Titus's example than anything else. I think this, you know, this reinforces the truth that more is caught than taught. Uh, what, what people learn from watching us, especially what young men learn from watching their fathers and watching uh, older men, is just as important, if not even more important, than what we teach. I just think it's interesting that when you know, Paul's talking about older men, or, uh, yeah, older men, older women, uh, younger women. He goes through, you know, teach them A, B, C, teach the older women D and E, teach the young women F and G. And, but then as far as young men, he just says, show yourself to be an example. Uh, I think they say that about 90% of young men in prison come from fatherless families. More than anything, young men need someone they can imitate, someone that they can look up to. Someone who is an example to them. And then uh, when you notice Paul's favorite word again in uh, verse, I think it's at the end of verse 6, uh, self-controlled, which again is that word sophron, which means having an inner outlook that regulates outward behavior. It means to be of sound mind, to exercise c control in curbing your, your passions and desires. Uh, the word's used three times uh, just in this passage alone. And so this is key, not just to young men, but to, in every category, Paul uses it, um, just about every category. Uh, it's about having a Christian worldview, not just knowing the Christian worldview, but, but believing it and practicing it. Having an inner outlook of faith in God's word, which then regulates our outward behavior. And when we have that, we become the kind of people that Paul describes in verse 8. Uh, people's, pe whose speech cannot be uh, truly condemned because we speak the truth. Because it's God's truth. We speak the truth in love. And pe but not just that our speech can't be condemned, but also our way of life cannot be justly condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I'm thinking about, you know, 
uh, speech and how I, I think it would be good to clarify what does Paul mean when he says speech that cannot be condemned because we live in a day when there's a lot of faithful Christian speech that actually is condemned. Um, you know, I can think of a lot of examples. If you oppose uh, critical race theory being taught to kids in public school, you might be called a racist. If you oppose uh, the government forcing vaccines upon you and your fellow citizens, you could be called anti-science or unloving towards your neighbor. Um, and so when Paul says that Christians should set an example in speech that cannot be condemned, he's, he obviously doesn't mean that you're not going to be condemned by, necessarily condemned by other people, because in the next phrase he acknowledges that we're still going to have opponents. A sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. So Paul recognizes that Christians will still have uh, enemies in the very next phrase. So what, he's talking about speech that cannot be condemned by God, that cannot justly be condemned. That, and, and even for men, if they're in good conscience, that men cannot, can also, cannot also condemn in good conscience if they want to keep a clear conscience. And then in verses uh, 9 and 10, we're not gonna, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I don't have a lot of time left. Uh, it's a long passage. Um, he talks about bond servants or slaves. Uh, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. It gives uh, instructions to Titus regarding slaves. Well, I think there are some good principles here, especially for employees uh, to follow with their behavior toward their employers. Um, it's important that we're careful in our application here because slaves are not employees. They're not the same thing. But there are some principles here. Uh, not, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, right? Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they may in everything adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I sometimes wonder how awesome it would be if there were, you know, articles and, uh, and posts on social media about the Christian worker phenomenon, Imagine, you know, how it would be that if employers were saying to each other, man, you've got to get yourself one of these Christian workers, right? Uh, you've got to get yourself one of these Christian workers. I've never had someone who works so hard for me or is so honest, who is so eager to learn the job, who is so dedicated to the company's success, who is, who is such a team player, and on and on they should go. That's what Paul's talking about. Adorning the doctrine of God, what we say about the gospel, that, so that people can see how the gospel plays out in our work, in whatever our work may be, whatever, whatever our job may be. Again, these are the civilizing effects of Christianity, the good fruit, what the, the, the good that Christianity does for culture, the good that Christianity does for a society. This is what the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes older men mature, steadfast in faith, worthy of honor and respect. The gospel makes 
older women who might otherwise, especially in Titus's day in Crete, might otherwise be gossips or given to excess. Instead, it makes them servants and teachers of younger women. It makes them godly grandmothers and godly examples and leaders in the church. The gospel makes young women who might naturally be idle or brash or uh, rebellious and disrespectful to their husbands into women marked by dedication to their home and devotion to their husbands and children. It makes them industrious and kind and, and submissive, even when their husbands might not be worthy of such respect. The gospel makes younger men who might naturally, younger men, when you think of younger men, you might naturally think of them being as wild and foolish, controlled by their own whims and passions. The gospel makes those younger men into self-controlled men of character. Men who are ready to get married, ready to have kids. Many, men who, who love their wives and kids and devote themselves to good works instead of entertaining themselves. Right? Men who display integrity and wisdom even at a young age. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ turns workers into, into great workers, right? Uh, it turns, it turns uh, ordinary workers into extraordinary workers who count it a privilege to work for someone and, and, and employees who don't seek to get as much benefit as possible for as little work as possible. Instead, they seek to bring as much productivity as possible to their employer because their boss's 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 boss is in heaven and he's also their father and they're working for him not for men. This is the civilizing effect of Christianity. This is the good fruit of Christianity. It turns people who are naturally rebelling against God into the very salt of the earth, is what Jesus said, into the preserving effect of society, the, 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 preserv the preservative factor of, of human society, and into the very light of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. The revelation that God's ways are good and that, that his, his ways are for our good, his laws are for our good. So that's the first half or so. Let's go to verse, uh, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, I love this passage. Uh, this could be a whole sermon, <laughs> really. Um, it's so beautiful. It's what Matt Chandler would call gospelicious. Um, and there's a lot to notice here. So the first thing I want to point out, uh, the grace of God has appeared. And then if you look in verse 13, about the middle of verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, th this sort of encapsulates Paul's teaching here about the gospel from beginning to end. Uh, the Christian life is lived from the appearing to the appearing. What, what, what do I mean by that? 
Well, the Christian life begins uh, when a person believes, when a person trusts in the person and work of Christ. They trust in the grace of God that appeared. Paul's talking about Christ's first coming. What does he mean when he says the grace of God has appeared? He means that Jesus has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. God became a man and he took on human flesh and he was, he was fully and he was truly God but also truly human at the same time and he lived a perfect life. And he voluntarily went to the cross in order to die a, a brutal and shameful death as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of everyone who repents and trusts in him. And then he rose from the dead. And, and so Christ appeared. The grace of God has appeared and brought salvation for all people. Right? Paul says it's for all people. Meaning that it's available to all people. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Whether you're old or young. White, black, brown. doesn't matter. Or what country you're from. God's salvation which has come through his only son, Jesus Christ, is available to all people. That's the first appearing. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Christ. So that's where the Christian life begins. It begins when a person sees by faith and embraces, again, by faith, the grace of God, which has come to them through Jesus Christ. That's the first appearing. And then, so when does the Christian life end? Well, there's a sense in which it never really ends, but it does come to a culmination. It comes to a consummation. And that happens at the end of history when the appearing happens. The blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns. At the end of history, Jesus Christ returns to gather all the people bought with his own precious blood. And to take them to be with him forever. And this is the great event. What, this is what Christians look to and long for. This is the goal of our lives. Not to be as comfortable as possible in this life. Not, not to, to have our best life now, right? Um, but we look for, for that day. We look to be holy and blameless on the day of his return. We don't live for this day. We live for that day. So the Christian life begins at the first appearing when... When, the, when a person trusts in Christ and the grace of God that has appeared for the salvation of all people, and then it comes to a culmination, it, it, it comes to its fulfillment at the second appearing, when Jesus returns. And then, so then, you know, what happens in the middle? And Paul talks about that in the middle. In the middle, what we're doing is we're, we're worshiping and we're waiting, but also... What is God doing in us? His grace is at work in us. His grace is training us in godliness. His, his grace is at work in us. And if it's not working in us, then we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that we really possess it. I was a false convert for many years, and I really wished that someone had, had come to me and asked me questions like this. They'd ask, they wish they had said to me, you say the grace of God has come to you? Well then, why hasn't it trained you and driven you to gather with God's people? Why hasn't it driven you and trained you to pray both privately and corporately? You say God's grace has come to you, then why hasn't it uh, why do you still entertain ungodly and worldly desires? Because God's grace, it, it does something. It works in us. It's not 
a passive thing. It's, a, it's, it's active in our hearts and lives. If the, grace is God, if the grace of God has come to you, it will actually train you to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, and it will train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the truth is that the grace of God has not come to you unless it is sanctifying you. And the world should be able to see that. The world should be able to see us as children of God, the people who are a holy people, the people who are a pure and righteous people. That's the grace of God at work. It should be visible. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not only that trusting in Christ saves you from eternal hell. It does, from the punishment of sin, from the penalty of sin. But it's also that trusting Christ saves you from sin itself. As Augustus Toplady said in the, in the great hymn, Rock of Ages, it, it saves from wrath and it makes me pure. And so if, if you are a Christian, then God's grace is ever present and ever working in your life to purify you. That's what it says in verse uh, 14. That's, that's why Jesus came and he gave himself for us so that the power of sin in our lives would be broken. So that he would redeem us from sin itself, from all lawlessness. To purify for himself a people that are, that are eager for good works. There is real power in the name of Jesus. There is real power over sin. The power of sin is broken when a person comes to faith in Christ. And if you're here this morning, and you have not come to know that salvation that kind of freedom, that kind of deliverance from bondage to sin, then I invite you to come to Christ today, to believe in him, to cry out to him and, and throw yourself upon his mercy. He promises that all who are weary and heavy laden will find rest in him. If you've not surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then I invite you to talk to me after uh, the service, or one of the other elders. We would love nothing more than to talk to you and to lead you to Christ. And so, uh, as we conclude this morning, just I don't want to leave off this last verse. Um, declare these things, Paul says to Titus. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Declare, exhort, and rebuke. That's it's a pastor's job description. It's an elder's job description because elders are pastors. We're, we're, we are to declare to you what God's word says. We're to exhort you, encourage you to continue steadfast in it and to obey it and to build your life upon it, um, to encourage you to a greater love and good works. And then there's the part that nobody likes, including elders like me, um, it's our job to, to rebuke, to correct, to point out when people get it wrong. It's the pastor's job to confront sin whenever, wherever, and in whomever it rears its ugly head. And we're to do this without partiality, and Paul says, with all authority. Not that, not that we have any kind of special authority in ourselves, we don't, uh, but it's because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And, and James River Community Church is part of his church, and his word is preached here, so we preach and teach his word because it's from his authority.
So that's uh, Titus chapter 2, the civilizing effect of Christianity, and it all comes through the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus came to give himself to redeem his people from all lawlessness, to purify them, to purify for himself a people who are no longer slaves to sin, but instead who are eager to do good works. If you're in Christ, then the grace of God is at work in you to redeem you from sin and to make you eager to please Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for every time that you remind us, Lord, of who you are and what you have done. And I pray, Lord, that as we go from here this morning, that we would fix our eyes on you and not take them off of you. Uh, I pray that you would help us, that your, your grace would indeed, we, we know that it's true, Lord, that your grace empowers us to live godly lives. Um, we know that we can, without you we cannot do anything, that we must remain in you, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that everyone here, if there's anyone here who has not come to faith in you, who has not truly repented and trusted in you, I, I pray that it would be today, that they would do so. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have, that you would continue your sanctifying work in us, Lord, and that we would um, be at war with our sin, that, that we would uh, renounce all ungodliness and worldly desires and live self-controlled and upright godly lives as we wait with eager anticipation the day of your glorious return. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.